Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to a special reef keeping edition of the Talking Reef Podcast, the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. I'm your host, Rob Weatherly. Every week I'll bring you a topic on marine fish or reef keeping, and once a month I'll bring you an interview with a columnist from Reef Keeping Magazine, found at reefkeeping.com. Now for this month we are joined by Chris Jury. Chris joined us a few months back, uh, and he's back to talk about an article that he's doing this month in Reef Keeping Magazine. Now the article is titled Nutrients in Coral Reefs, and this is part one in a series that he's doing. Now this part is on the biogeochemical cycles that are found in nature and how they apply to our tanks. The first thing I want to mention is that this first article is kind of a build-up to some of the other articles. So we do bring and tie a lot of the key points back to what they really mean to a hobbyist and how they affect you. Uh, But it's important that if you find this interesting, make sure you follow up at reefkeeping.com for the future articles that should be out uh, in the successive months to get the rest of the information. We'll talk about a little bit later on, uh, but there's a lot of good stuff that that he's going to be talking about. Uh, So with that being said, let's uh, go ahead and move right on to the interview with Chris. Chris, welcome back to the Talking Reef Podcast. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Glad I could be here. Great. Now, this is a, a very interesting article you got uh, going through nutrients and such. And some of the things that you mentioned was specifically the term term nutrients. And it's something that we as hobbyists hear all the time. And it's stuff that we've discussed before on previous shows. Um, but I think one of the important things uh, that we kind of alluded to before is, you know, what nutrients are exactly and, you know, why many people think that they're, you know, just bad things. And the term nutrients is kind of coined as a bad thing. Uh, can you take a minute and kind of explain what nutrients are and how they apply specifically to our, our tanks? Sure, absolutely. Um, and, yeah, as you said, um, typically in the reef hobby, we're often um, told and we often pass along the idea that um, nutrients, uh, quote-unquote, are bad for our reef tanks, um, so we should keep nutrients out of them. Uh, what a nutrient is, uh, just for a quick and dirty definition for everyone, A nutrient is an element or compound, some sort of substance that is necessary for a living living organism to use in order to live. Um, Might be necessary for their metabolism, so energy usage. Might be a necessary building block so they can produce tissues and grow and reproduce, something along those lines. But it's some substance that a living thing needs to live. So these are... Not bad things; they're good things. Where, how do you? Can you take a minute and kind of explain a little bit, you know, quickly about, you know, how they've all been all of a sudden been coined as bad, and everybody talks about, you know, all high nutrient levels and excess nutrients, and nutrients are bad, and you got to get rid of your nutrients and stuff like that. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, well um, all things in moderation, I suppose. Um, as with as with anything, you know, there can be too little and there can be too much. And one of the characteristics of a coral reef, um, and really any any tropical oceanic water um, beyond beyond real close to the shore, does tend to be very poor in dissolved inorganic nutrients, specifically in nitrogen and phosphorus. There's very little 
inorganic nitrogen and inorganic phosphorus in those waters. And those are the nutrients that are typically uh, being used or the sorts of nutrients that are being used by algae in order for their growth right. um, as opposed to organic nutrients, which would be used by uh, primarily by uh, uh, different sorts of organisms, um, animals, things of that sort, uh, heterotrophic organisms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So definitely such a thing as too many nutrients. Um, what we've kind of uh, gotten into a pattern of doing in the hobby, though, is the idea that nutrients in any amount and in with any regard are to be avoided. And that doesn't parallel uh, the way that coral reefs are set up. Coral reefs use a great deal of nutrients. I mean, they're absolutely packed full of life. That's why we all like them. You know, there's a lot of cool stuff on them. And in order to support the organisms that live there, those organisms have to have ready access to a large supply of nutrients. They have to have those nutrients in order to be alive, to continue living, to reproduce, do all those things. It's really, um, it's really the forms of the nutrients and the amounts that are uh, important points to consider or important considerations for reef hobbyists. Now, speaking of forms and and types and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. one of the things that you did was outlined uh, three specific items, that being carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus. Can we go a little bit deeper and talk about each one of those and, you know, how they would apply to a hobbyist and what we need to understand about them? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Well, just speaking um, uh, very basically, um, carbon is a very versatile element. It's um, important in the structure of just about... Anything you can associate with a living organism. Um, Carbon is kind of the backbone of every organic molecule. Um, Whether it's a structural compound, you know, something that's uh, being used to build tissues, whether it's in um, energy metabolism, anything, anything at all in a living organism is using uh, carbon. So obviously that's a very important element and a very important nutrient for every living thing. Um, additionally, nitrogen, uh, critically important for every living thing. Uh, if, you, if you look at heterotrophic organisms, those are organisms that need to um, eat food. They can't form their own food. Things like people or cats, dogs, um, other animals, etc. Uh, ba- many bacteria, uh, things of that sort. They are composed of large amounts of nitrogen. The nitrogen is used in the amine group of amino acids which build proteins. So, you know, uh, a person, a cow, whatever, is made of protein or largely made of protein. There's a lot of nitrogen in that protein. Mm -hmm. So obviously, um, nitrogen is important. In autotrophic organisms, things like plants, algae, etc., they're using that nitrogen primarily in uh, chlorophyll and substances like that. Phosphorus, yeah, um, phosphorus, um, likewise, critically important. Um, we simply, w- life would not exist as we understand it um, if it weren't for elemental phosphorus. And that's now, used I, in I'm things. I'm sorry, let me, let me interrupt mm-hmm. you for one second. Um, sure. the, the term phosphorus, is that something that, because uh, it, it sounds like something that we might confuse with, you know, the, the classic term phosphates, which lead to, 
you know, known sure. algae problems and something like that. Can we kind of clarify exactly what uh, is referred to as phosphorus? And is that in any relation to, you know, the, the PO4 phosphates that we test for and try to remove? Sure. Uh, yeah, very good question. Um, and something that um, confuses almost every hobbyist I've ever talked with, um, other other than like chemists or biochemists. Right. Um, that's why I figured it would be a good thing to, to lay out real quick. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, tends to confuse everybody. Um, phosphorus, um, if we use that term, is an element. Um, if you went to the periodic table of the elements, you know, that lists all the elements mm -hmm. that exist. Um, just elemental phosphorus is, is that. It's an element. Um, phosphate, however, um, and specifically orthophosphate, is PO4-3-. Um, That's an ion. Now, when living organisms use uh, or when they're incorporating phosphorus, the element, into their living structures, typically it's in the form of orthophosphate. However, there are a lot of other forms as well. Um, orthophosphate is used in, in DNA, RNA, um, in a lot of cell membranes. Um, that, that's how it exists most of the time. But there are other uh, inorganic forms of it that often get uh, attached to organic molecules within cells. So the important distinction, I suppose, is talking about phosphorus, we mean just the element, and that element can be used to form a lot of different kinds of compounds in living organisms. Phosphate um, is typically, typically what we mean there is the ion orthophosphate, and orthophosphate is PO4 through minus. Um, that, when dissolved, in uh, in aquarium water, you know, um, can have certain repercussions, et cetera, and we can discuss that a little bit in just a while here. But um, that is a specific ion. Okay, good. Yeah, I think is a, a good distinction. So when we're talking about you know the nutrients in in the term of phosphate or phosphorus, <laughs> there's a, there's a difference. We're not specifically referring to you know phosphates that most hobbyists are familiar with. Exactly. Exactly, and that. Like I, I mentioned, there are other forms um, that are used in um, in living organisms right. in uh, in metabolism. So it's not always that ion. That's a specific ion, and it very often is in that form, but mm -hmm. not always. Um, typically, it's in, in a living thing. It's going to be attached to some big organic molecule. Right, um, right. Although it might be an orthophosphate group. Gotcha. Now, after talking about nutrients uh, in your article, you went through something which I, I, I think many of us are probably not familiar with, and it's the term of uh, nutrient limitation in a certain law of minimums. Can you elaborate on this a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is something um, that, that probably uh, most folks that haven't had um, much training in ecology or plant biology, something like that, are not real familiar with. Um, and uh, the law is Liebig's law of the minimum, or just the law of the minimum, or it's got a few other common names as well. Um, but just to give you a little background on how this was discovered, um, uh, Liebig is a German in, I believe he was born about around 1820, 1822, something around that. Um, in the middle to later part of the eight, uh, 1800s, the 19th century, he was working on... Um, on crop agriculture, or agriculture. He was working mm -hmm. on crops and crop productivity. Um, and what he found is that 
in certain instances, in certain soil types, if you added uh, nitrogen, the plants would grow. Um, and they'd grow more than if you didn't add nitrogen. In other soil types, um, if you added nitrogen, they wouldn't grow. If you added phosphorus, in some soil types, they'd grow. In other soil types, they wouldn't grow more. In some soil types, if you add potassium, they'd grow more. Other soil types, they wouldn't grow more. So what he, um, what he hypothesized and hypothesized correctly is whatever the least abundant nutrient is relative to how much is needed, that's what's going to stop um, these plants from growing. So if there's not enough nitrogen in the soil, but there's enough of everything else, if you add nitrogen, they start growing more. If you don't add nitrogen, they don't grow more. And that's, um, it, it's a concept that's uh, critical to understanding uh, the growth of, of really any organism or any population. Um, and, you know, it's fairly straightforward. Whatever is the least available resource is what determines how much growth you can have or how many of a certain species you can have. So if, still, we, that makes sense. if we take it back a little bit and kind of bring this into something that people might be able to relate with a little bit, if you have... <laughs> You know, let's say you have a fish and it needs three different types of food. And this is, I'm, it's very exaggerated here, but it's kind of just to sink the point in. And it needs type A food, type B food, and type C food. Um, if you're feeding more than enough type A and type B, you're not going to get the growth results that you're expecting um, if type C is not also fed in the same amount. So if you've got lots of A, lots of B, and very little to no C, your results are going to be null because you need you know all three of those or you'll only the growth or the expected results will only be in proportion to the lowest of the three so if you've got lots exactly. of lots of a lots of b and you know a little bit of c you'll get a little bit of growth but if you increase c to be equal to the rest of them then everything else should catch back up you know due to you know you bringing that level up Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that's you know that's actually a, a very good analogy, and um, same, you know that some, same sort of thing is um, uh, certainly a consideration whenever we're trying to grow anything in captivity. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have enough of a particular nutrient uh, for what the organism requires, whether that's a coral, a fish, a snail, a yep. who knows what, um, it's not going to grow well. It's gonna, it's going to be malnourished, and it's simply not going to do well, even if all but one of its nutritional requirements are um, are met or are exceeded. If it doesn't have something that it needs, it's not going to do well. You know, it's the the uh, weakest link yep. is where the chain breaks. You know, yeah. whatever the lowest common denominator is, that's going to limit. You know what um, what you can have happening if you're trying to grow something. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I think that's important because. You know, I, I think a lot of people go through these articles, and I know that, you know, between the two of us, we've kind of discussed some of this stuff, you know, offline uh, about this. But people will read through these articles, and sometimes it's kind of hard for them to understand how it relates to them and what this really means to them. And this is a, a good thing. And, and one of the reasons that I had mentioned, you know, kind of uses the fish as an analogy is, um, you know, one of the things that I do is, you know, I'm working on, you know, breeding clownfish. And, when you're trying to get a you know a pair of clownfish to spawn, uh, you can't you know feeding is probably one of the most important things you know to get a healthy clutch of eggs, 
And in order to get a healthy clutch of eggs, you need to feed the the parents well. And th- it means that they need a variety of different types of food. If you were to just keep them on, you know, flake food, regular plain flake food, they're not going to do well. Uh, so you need a little variety there. But then looking into something like coral, um, you can relate a little even more to this because not only do you need to, you know, in a lot of cases add some type of, um, you know, particulate food for them to eat, uh, for them to grow. They also need uh, a component of light uh, in a lot of cases for them to grow. They're also going to need components of certain elements, uh, calcium and uh, magnesium, you know, so on and so forth. Now, if any three of those were missing, you're going to have real growth problems uh, and, and stuff like that. So it's important to understand that, you know, along with what we're talking about here, this is a concept that really applies across the board. And it, it may be one or two items. It may be five, six, seven, eight items. Um, but if you're having some kind of, you know, issue that you're trying to work on and resolve, you know, it it, it kind of helps people understand that there's more than one thing that, you know, to look at and make sure that we're checking out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, I got, you know, um, t- taking uh, your example of breeding the clownfish a step further, uh, we're, we're really only successful with breeding clownfish in captivity once we did start manipulating their diet a little bit. Yeah. You know, previously, and this has gone back several decades now, but um, in- until we started adding um, certain fatty acids to their diet, yep. uh, omega 3s, um, DHA, EPA, things like this, um, you you would get a clutch of eggs, and out of thousands or hundreds, maybe get right. a few survivors, mm-hmm. and they were all all really screwed up. Yep, and uh, I've I've worked with I've worked with people uh, in the past where they you know I I would get the eggs from them and I try hatching them out, um, and my success rate was very very minimal. And in almost each case, what it had worked back to was the parents not being fed well. So they were being fed enough to where they're laying the laying the clutch of eggs, but the eggs just weren't viable. I mean, they you know not to you know I won't get off into a tangent there, but they just you know it worked into uh, a nutritional lacking uh, and just not being fed properly. So you know I know that I I feed a whole bunch of different things and I add the supplements and stuff like that in there to get a lot of the extra stuff that they need, but. Uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 an important thing, uh, and I'm I'm kind of glad that we were able to to cover that. I didn't mean to steal all your thunder there, but I, I thought it was a good connection for people. Yeah, a- absolutely, um, absolutely. That, that's that's a great example, and you know, um, absolutely, uh, the the clownfish, and um, I've seen this not not only in fish, but um, in all kinds of organisms. A lot of times, the adults will get enough calories um, or uh, enough nutrition to produce eggs. But then have very weak offspring, right. and it's it's because something in their diet is lacking. Exactly. They've got enough to make the eggs, or enough resources to make the eggs, but they don't have the proper resources to produce um, healthy eggs. Right, and it's because whatever that limiting constituent is, whatever mm-hmm. that limiting nutrient is, um, there's just not enough of it. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah. yeah, and I mean the same thing for coral. I mean. It's coral, something that we, you know, a lot of people struggle with a lot more than fish. I mean, generally speaking, fish are usually easier to, to take care of. And in a lot of cases, um, can, you know, when there's a problem, they're, you know, I'm speaking very generally here, but, uh, you know, a little more easy to identify the issue. But when we get into various types of coral, uh, identifying, you know, weaknesses in the link and trying to figure out what's lacking can be pretty difficult. So uh, it's an important thing there. So, 
Well, I think that being said, let's uh, let's see if we can move on a little bit. Um, sure. <laughs> uh, one of the next things that you were talking about in the article uh, was specifically uh, bio, uh, biochemical cycles. Um, but before we get into the specific cycles, can you kind of take a minute and explain to us what uh, a biochemical cycle is in general? Yep, um, a biogeochemical cycle. Um, well, uh, drawing from the word itself, um, bio referring, you know, obviously to living things, um, geo referring to the earth, you know, geology, um, geography, et cetera, chemical referring to... Let me guess, um, a chemical? <laughs> matter and energy. You would be correct, yeah. Um, really, yeah. Very Sorry, good. you had to do it. Um, really, whatever. <laughs> no problem. Um, what that um, refers to and kind of the history of the development, I take a few sentences to describe just where that came from. Um, a biogeochemical bio cycle is uh, a cycle or uh, a cycle of moving uh, material such as carbon or such as nitrogen, water, etc., that is moderated by living things. So. For instance, there are a lot of living things in the biosphere here on Earth. Um, they're all taking in carbon all the time, and they're releasing carbon all the time. And how that carbon moves around the surface of our planet, in the ocean, in the atmosphere, that is the carbon biogeochemical cycle. Now, there's a couple, uh, a couple known cycles. Um, the one that most everybody um, should be, familiar with uh the nitrogen cycle and most of us are familiar with that you know as the cycling process in our tanks and part of the biological filtration um you know and that's something that uh and, and correct me if i'm wrong on any of this uh but the the nitrogen cycle is a relatively uh rapid cycle the the and uh, you know stuff goes through that cycle fairly quickly um the next one that you were mentioning was the uh uh, carbon cycle. Now, there's a big difference in speed. There is that's like a that's a very extended, um, like tens of thousands of years cycle in nature. Um, uh, and then, on, and to be honest with you, the phosphorus cycle is not one that I've heard of before. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, glad to bring that to you. Um, yeah. Typically, um, relative to relative to some other um, uh, cycles, biogeochemical cycles. Um, the nitrogen cycle does tend to be relatively rapid. The carbon cycle, um, in terms of a human lifetime, tends to be slow. But over geologic right. time, over the billions right. of years that the Earth has been around, um, we'd usually consider that a relatively rapid cycle. Okay, so um, on a geological cycle, stage, it's rapid. Exactly, gotcha. exactly. And it's, um, you know, it might take, might take 10,000 years um, for an atom of carbon to turn over, but considering um, that the Earth is many billions of years right. old, relative to other cycles, that does tend to be fairly rapid, and similar for the nitrogen cycle. Um, phosphorus, in general, tends to turn over much, much, much more slowly. Okay. Um, a lot of the phosphorus that's in the environment now and is being used now um, is phosphorus that became available perhaps as much as several billion years ago. You know, 10,000 years versus several billion years, obviously, yeah, very big difference. Big difference. Uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and, yeah, as you mentioned, um, components of the nitrogen cycle are probably what's most familiar 
to a lot of Aquarists, uh, mm -hmm. where we all are, at least all should be uh, familiar <laughs> with, um, you know, the basic um, cycle of nitrification. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got living things producing ammonia. That ammonia is oxidized over to nitrite, which is oxidized to nitrate. Um, nitrate being um, relatively less toxic to most of the things that we're, that we're keeping in aquariums. Um, but there are a lot of, excuse me, there are a lot of other steps in that cycle um, that I detail a little bit more closely right. in the article. A lot of folks have heard of uh, denitrification, mm -hmm. which is a method of turning nitrate back into nitrogen gas. And mm -hmm. something that um, <laughs> folks may or may not be familiar with is the air that we breathe. Um, our atmosphere is composed of about 79% nitrogen, nitrogen yep. gas. It's mm -hmm. mostly nitrogen. Um, and that's where most of it on the planet is, or at least most of it that's accessible to living organisms is just up in the air. And denitrification by turning that nitrate into dinitrogen gas is a way that it's lost from ecosystems and put back in the gotcha. atmosphere. And that's probably something a lot of folks have heard of. Um, I go into a little bit more detail about that on the article or in the article and, um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. they'll uh, be able to read that and um, probably be able to understand it better than if I were explaining it here. <laughs> right. Now, um, kind of moving on just a, a little bit here, um, with these biochemical or biogeochemical cycles, um, you know, as mentioned, most of us are familiar with, uh, you know, the component of the nitrogen cycle that, you know, happens in our tank, you know, as, as mentioned. Um, so I, I think that is should be apparent in its relevancy. Um, but when we're getting into stuff like uh, the carbon cycle or the phosphorus cycle, um, is this, I, you know, again, you're doing a series here. Are, are those two more of a buildup for future articles or do they have a direct relevancy to uh, hobbyists? You know, I mean, if I'm if I decide that, you know, when we're done doing this show, I need to go over and do some work on my tank. Do I need to think about the carbon cycle or the phosphorus cycle? Uh, well, the fast answer is yes. Okay, and that's <laughs> yes, what I was hoping for, and that's—I wanted to make that tie here because I'll—I'll I'll be honest with you. Um, mm -hmm. I've never thought about the phosphorus cycle, needless to say, because I, I'm not familiar with it. Um, but even being familiar with the carbon cycle, it—it it, none of it ever clicked with me. So, um, <laughs> enlighten me, please. Fair <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Let me um, let me get into a little bit of the relevancy for Aquarius. And that, as you mentioned, this is going to be a multi-part series. So um, this part um, and the, the beginning of it certainly is going to be a little bit of build-up because there are right. certain concepts that Aquarius has to understand if they'll understand and appreciate what I'll be discussing right, in right. later segments. Yeah, and um, I mean, I however, understand. I understand how carbon <laughs> is important, and and you know, carbon is uh, essential to life. I mean, we are, you know, life on this planet is carbon-based. So I understand that, you know. You know, carbon is important, but you know, help help me tie the the pieces together as the relevancy between the carbon cycle and how I take care of my tank now that I have this information after reading your your series of articles. Sure, absolutely. Um, what, one of the important pieces of information um, that I would glean from this first part is um, looking at carbon dioxide chemistry, and I don't. I don't have a chance to go into this too deeply in the article, so you know it's great that I'm able to do this here. But um, the the um, buffering um, component 
of seawater. And all, all of us as reef aquarists probably are familiar with measuring alkalinity and mm-hmm. the importance of maintaining alkalinity for the health of the organisms in our tank. Um, the relationship between alkalinity and pH um, is, isn't necessarily uh, terribly difficult to understand, right. although it's something that a lot of folks haven't um, had a chance to really delve into. But suffice it to say, uh, the more carbon dioxide there is in the air, the um, the lower the pH becomes, unless we raise alkalinity. If we raise alkalinity, that can offset that. But one of the things I discuss in the article um, under the carbon cycle section is um, just what's happened with the um, carbon dioxide uh, concentration in the atmosphere over the last few hundred years. And um, something I, I'm not able to get into in the article um, too much, I may have a chance to in later segments, right. um, is the fact that by increasing that carbon dioxide, uh, corals and coral reefs are actually growing slower than they did even just a hundred years ago or a few hundred years ago. Okay. Um, and that's because the pH of the ocean is actually dropping. Mm. Um, something that's important for aquarists to understand there is maintaining their pH. You know, a lot of times folks with things like calcium reactors, yep. they're going to be pumping carbon dioxide into their aquarium that can depress the pH and um, decrease calcification. So understanding that component of the carbon cycle um, is going to be important to maintaining their tanks well. Also, just having, um, oftentimes, uh, just having a skimmer on the indoors or such, pulling in the air from inside our houses, the air in our houses tends to be high in carbon dioxide, higher than outside. Um, and that can even de- depress pH and affect calcification. Um, so understanding uh, how how the carbon cycle plays in with calcification uh, of our corals and other organisms in the tank certainly is going to be an important component of maintaining those tanks. Well. So a lot of it has to do, you know, specifically with the carbon cycle, has to do with um, understanding and working with um, pH fluctuations in our tank and maintaining them and keeping them at the right level. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's going to be um, it's going to be critical to understanding pH and calcification um, in particular. But besides that, um, the the growth rate, um, uh, well, the the growth of any sort of um, algae or any sort of um, primary producers, those are the first um, organisms in a food web that are growing. Exactly, um, that's going to have a lot to do with how much carbon is available, things like that. They're the ones that are using that um, carbon and putting it into the food chain. They're the ones that are kind of injecting that energy in that everything else lives off of. Right. So is the important thing here um, beyond, and I don't, don't mean, you know, so I don't mean to simplify what you're, we're getting at, but um, is the underlying point here is to, you know, pay close attention and understand um, the pH fluctuations in your tank uh, you know, watch it, you know, if they're going up and down and make sure that you keep them where they're supposed to be. Uh, is there is there something else that we, we should be gleaning from this? Absolutely. No, um, I, I would um, I, I would certainly um, take that point from it. And I'll get into a little bit more about um, some of the specifics um, as the as the series progresses. Right, right. Uh, but um, certainly just, just understanding the basics of the carbon cycle mm-hmm. are going to be important for several conclusions and several ideas that will be coming up um, uh, in the next few issues. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, 
sometimes there's a lot of people that, you know, again, they'll look at some of this stuff and, you know, even with, you know, this information being said, it's like, okay, well, you know, I know my pH is at, it's, it's fine. I don't really need to care about, you know, the carbon cycle or this or the other thing. But, um, you know, you know, for my daytime job, you know, one of the things I do, you know, I work with, with technology, uh, you know, on a regular basis. And, um, the, uh, one of the, one of the concepts that I apply to my work there, um, also applies here. And it's, uh, the more you understand the fundamental, uh, steps or components of what we're doing, uh, it, it makes it 10 times easier when you're trying to make changes. So if we have a problem in our tank and we need to make a change to adjust for it, or if we're just making a change to the system, understanding these concepts at a fundamental level, what they do, what they impact, and how all the pieces tie together, um, you know, when we're applying it to Reef Aquaria, uh, you know, being able to understand all these different things and understanding that, you know, carbon dioxide is going to have an effect on your pH. So if you are in a small house that's closed up all the time, there's a good chance that you're going to have an, an elevated level of carbon dioxide. And if you're battling with a pH problem, hey, that might be something to look at. You know, crack a window. Um, I've actually heard of people that have run into issues where um, they're having pH problems. And I, you know, and I think there was even one on the talking reforms where we were talking about this. And it was just a matter of opening the window in the room uh, where the tank was at that helped stabilize their pH levels. So, I uh, don't I don't want anybody to under, underestimate the simplicity or, you know, the the level of where this is at. Having, uh, you know, understanding of these different components is is important to have. Yeah, a absolutely. And um as I said, you know, these these are concepts that everyone needs to understand to understand the conclusions that we'll make later. Right. Uh, for instance, if uh and um uh well, for instance, um something that I should have a chance to discuss in a later segment is um, kind of a surprising uh, um, consequence of how coral reefs work. But um, if you take a healthy coral reef covered in coral and uh, kill all the coral and set it becomes covered in algae, well, suddenly your really large fish start dropping out because they don't have enough food. Why in the world would that be? And it's explained by the carbon cycle. So if you don't understand these basics, um, it, it won't be possible to understand some of the, the conclusions right. that we'll reach later. Exactly, exactly. Um, well, you know, I think that covers most of the, the stuff that we, uh, that we wanted to get to. Is there anything else that you, you wanted to add to this, anything we haven't talked about, any prep for the, the future articles you're going to be doing that you kind of want to throw in before, before we wrap up? Sure. Well, um, uh, really, the series, um, what it's going to focus on is um, what, what's happening to nutrients on coral reefs in nature. You know, where are they coming from um, when they come to a coral reef? Where do they exit? How is that happening? Uh, what's, the, what's the internal recycling like that happens on a reef? Because a lot of times we hear that nutrients are bad for our reef tanks, um, which obviously can't be true because everything in them is made of nutrients and mm -hmm. everything in them needs nutrients. Um, and another, uh, another consideration uh, that really puzzled scientists for decades is um, coral reefs grow in, in water that has very little dissolved uh, uh, inorganic nitrogen and phosphorus, yet they have very high levels of productivity. They grow algae really, really fast and mm -hmm. have a lot of life on them. How in the world does that happen? Well, 
it's um, it's actually explained by some relatively simple concepts, although we don't fully appreciate every detail yet. Right. Um, and that's, that's what this series is going to explain and how we can incorporate those aspects of how nature works into our aquariums. You know, what's, what is a protein skimmer replicating? What is a water change replicating? Why do we need to do things one way? Why would it be good or bad to do things another way? Great. You know, and I think that's, that's good because there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, the more and more that I work with people, um, I see a lot of people that really try to, you know, replicate nature the the best that we can. I mean, needless to say, nature's got it right, <laughs> you know, or at least the best, the best that she can. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so a lot of us try to replicate uh, a, a lot of that stuff when doing our, our, our systems. I mean, to a certain extent, there's some things that we just can't replicate, but uh, I think that would be that's going to be a great thing for people to to go through and read to to help see those ties and and understand how it works in nature, and that will give you a better understanding of how you're trying to replicate it in in your your captive system there. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. Um, I mean the the nice thing, as you said, nature definitely does it right, and the closer um, we can do it to nature, the closer we can be assured that we're doing it the right way yep, yep. every time we deviate from that we um we might get away with it and have no problems or we might introduce problems so right. if we can understand how nature does it and how foods are provided and wastes are processed on a real coral reef then we can really appreciate much more effectively um how to replicate that in captivity and how to have just really easy to care for healthy reefs healthy tanks great now uh, I think that's pretty much going to wrap it up. Uh, you are getting ready to make a uh, a nice trip to Puerto Rico, are you not? You want to? Is there anything you yeah. you can or want to mention about that? <laughs> sure, absolutely. Um, yep, um, I will we'll be actually heading out um, myself along with um, two other um, uh, sort of uh, coral researchers. We'll be heading out with Dr. Alina Schmont from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, down to Puerto Rico. Um, I'm a new graduate student under Alina. I'm just starting this summer, uh, getting my master's in marine biology, and I'll be working on some aspects. haven't decided exactly what right. the master's thesis will focus on. Um, any, of, any event, we'll be in Puerto Rico for the next two months um, collecting coral spawn, uh, we'll be working with four species, Acropora palmata, Acropora cervicornis, uh, Diploria strigosa, as well as, or, yeah, <laughs> as well as um, Montastria cavernosa and Montastria fabiolata. Um, collecting the spawn of those corals, settling about two million larval corals, um, doing several experiments uh, to better understand what affects the larvae, and what affects newly settled corals. Mm -hmm. And if all goes really well, then the research that Alina's been doing for the past um, eight years or so, um, specifically in this field, as well as what we figure out this year, will help us to come up with some really good systems for culturing massive amounts of coral larvae and eventually for coral reef restoration. Now, is that something, and I know this is off topic about what we're talking about, but is the research that you're doing with that, is that, you know, just to kind of get a tie back to the hobby, is this research that would uh, lend towards just raising or caring for the pre-existing spawn, or would it be actually 
contributing to ways to get various corals to actually t totally spawn and reproduce and be successful in captivity? Uh, both, both, um, most Great. certainly. Um, I mean, uh, there there are species that we do keep in captivity fairly regularly, mm -hmm. which are called um, brooding corals. They release they release um, relatively lower numbers, a few dozen or a few hundred um, big larvae that have really good chances of survival. And we actually, um, in the lab here, have a bunch of li little fabia fragum. That's a, um, it's a brain coral that lives in the Caribbean mm -hmm. that spawns every month, every cool. month, um, almost like clockwork. They release um, larvae, planulae. And uh, we actually have, we've got an undergraduate here right now that's collecting those and doing some experiments with those. There's no reason in the world um, that many of the corals that we keep in captivity couldn't be induced to spawn. And that there's no reason we couldn't settle the larvae from those corals. It's, it's not, you know, it's not perhaps the easiest thing in the world to do, but with a little work, um, you know, in a few years, we could very much be growing a heck of a lot of corals from larvae in captivity. There, there's no reason to think we couldn't do that because, you know, <laughs> just a few years ago, many of the organisms we keep very easily now were considered very, very difficult. Well, you know, raising the clownfish isn't exactly the easiest thing in the world to do. And even five, you know, five, ten years ago it was, you know, next to impossible for people to be very successful at. So understanding, you know, what you guys are doing uh, doing here is going to, you know, help get us, you know, hopefully that much closer to raising and, and breeding corals in captivity uh, better than what we're doing today. Uh, and, you know, that's all around good for the hobby as a whole and for, uh, the natural reefs. I mean, it's going to mean we're taking less off of them and it, we can become more of a self-sustaining hobby. So um, I wish you uh, the best of luck. And uh, actually, somebody else that is uh, familiar with Talking Reef, uh, uh, Jake, who does some, some shows for us uh, from time to time, right, uh, is right. also going with you too, correct? Yep, yep. Um, he he will be my shadow down there. I said, no, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> be nice. No, uh, yeah. No, he and I um, have um, great professional respect for each other, although we, we too um, bicker quite a bit. Um, but it's all in love. So. Yes. Well, don't worry, everybody, because what we're going to do is we're going to get Chris and Jake on the show together. We're going to hit the record button and let them fight. <laughs> yeah, that that will be entertaining to say the least. <laughs> Actually, I, I something we, we should look at because I think it would be quite educational for everybody because, you know, a lot of people don't understand that even, you know um, – you know, even the people that do this professionally, the quote-unquote experts in there, there's still a lot of stuff that's not always agreed upon. And, you know, that's the way it is in, in this uh, science field. That's that's just how things are. So uh, we'll work on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll do what we can. Eh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, well, uh, Chris, I wanted to thank you um, uh, for taking the time to come back on the show with us and wish you and Jake uh, the best of luck in Puerto Rico. I hope your research uh, efforts go well and um, you enjoy your spawn. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. Thank you very much, Rob. Right. Uh, thanks for having me again. No problem. Talk to you later. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, and that wraps up this month's interview. Uh, special thanks again to Chris Jury for taking the time for, to join us this week, uh, or for this month, for the reef-keeping interview. 
Uh, at this point, we'll move on to some of the other things that you can find at reefkeeping.com. Uh, some of the f- articles that are going on this month, the featured article is an article on the flasher ras, uh, if I could talk right. Uh, and this is a new, well, not necessarily new, but a recently recognized fish in the hobby. So make sure you check that one out. Uh, there's also a good article there uh, by Randy Holmes Farley. Uh, and this one's titled, What is Skimming? So if you are looking for more information on skimming or understanding how it works, this side or the other thing, uh, make sure you head over to reefkeeping.com to check out that article. And of course, don't forget to check out Reefkeeping's famous top 10 list. This month you get top 10 ways your fish are different than your other pets. Uh, so again, make sure you head over to reefkeeping.com, check out uh, that And that's about all for this month's Reefkeeping edition of the Talking Reef Podcast. Make sure you check out the Talking Reef website at www.talkingreef.com and subscribe to the feed to hear all the great Talking Reef podcasts. Uh, New podcasts are released every single week, so make sure you check that out. Uh, And I will talk to you next month with another great interview. Thanks. Thanks.